Welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com. Tonight's Ask the Vet Live is Pigeon Fever, Learn How to Protect Your Horse. The event is brought to you for free by exclusively equine.com, the official store of the Horse.com. We're joined tonight by Dr. Sharon Spear, who is from uh, the University of California Davis Veterinary School. Welcome, Dr. Spear. Hello. And um, so, Dr. Spear, you are board certified in internal medicine, and you're also a professor and researcher at UC Davis. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in pigeon fever? Yes. Yeah, so, I grew up in Texas, when graduated from Texas A&M University, and I first um, became interested in this disease after moving to California to perform an internal medicine residency. And back um, when I was in veterinary school in Texas, which was in the 80s, um, the disease was recognized, but really only rarely in Texas. So we never saw cases in veterinary school or really learned much about it. Um, if there's listeners now from Texas, they're aware that in the last couple of years, um, there's been thousands of cases in Texas. But once I came to California where the disease is considered endemic, that means that you know we see it frequently, and it's been seen, you know, for, oh, 80 years or more. Um, then I started seeing more cases, became involved in research um, actively since 1992, and I've really tried to get veterinarians and vaccine companies interested in pursuing a vaccine. Um, there really wasn't that much interest until recent years, and so while I'm discouraged that the disease has become more prevalent, at least it is getting um, more attention. Uh, and I was just at the ACVIM forum in Seattle in June, yes. and this was brought up as part of the Emerging Diseases Luncheon, um, which we, we've been aware that pigeon fever is important, and a, uh, AAEP recently uh, produced some new guidelines um, for the disease, um, but it was really interesting to see it there. So are, were you part of those guidelines that were created for AAEP? Uh, yes, yes. So myself and my um, my opinions and the opinions of my colleagues and also the results of our research studies were summarized in um, that publication, which is available online, and um, also um, was involved with um, helping gathering uh, material for Dr. Pasterla, who presented material from UC Davis on, on Carini at the ACVIM forum. So um, this disease... You can call it emerging, but by definition, it's actually a re-emerging disease. So um, this, this organism has been in the United States. It was first um, seen in 1915 in the Bay Area. And outbreaks of involving hundreds of horses have been seen in Texas and Colorado and the West um, over the years. So it's, it's um, only within the recent probably 10 to 15 years, though, that we've seen even more cases than we've seen in the past. So it was seen sporad it's been seen sporadically, but there's something that's made it re-emerge where we're seeing a higher incidence of cases. Okay. And horse owners are definitely becoming more familiar with it. Um, we had hundreds of questions submitted for tonight's live event. For everyone who's listening live, um, if you've joined us before, you know the drill. You can send in questions uh, via your browser console right in front of you. Um, if you're new to listening to Asavet Lives, thank you for joining us. You can just type in your questions right there. And our editor in chief, Stephanie Church, is reading those questions as they come in, as they come in, and sending them to me. Um, and hopefully, we can get Dr. Spear to answer some of those. In the meantime, we're going to start with these questions that were submitted uh, during registration for the event. We have a lot of them, um, so let's see how many of these we can tackle. Uh, Dr. Spear, let's start with the first one and it's from Gail who's in Australia and she wants to know what is pigeon fever and can it kill our horses? Okay so pigeon fever um, is not caused by pigeons number one it's a bacterial infection um, it's a gram positive bacterial disease so it's not a viral disease and it's not a you know parasitic disease the disease does occur worldwide um, in, in horses. Interestingly, in Australia, it's very prevalent in sheep and goats, but not prevalent in horses. There's different strains of the organism that are seen in sheep and goats, goats versus horses. So um, 
I would encourage Gail if she thinks she's seeing it in horses to actually, you know, do some cultures and see if, if it truly is um, this bacteria that's, um, that's causing problems. So the, the disease takes on different forms. Um, the most common by far is uh, abscesses that occur in the chest, in the pectoral region, and that gives them a, a swollen chest. And so they resemble a pigeon's breast. So that's why it's been given the name of pigeon fever. Has nothing to do with being transmitted by pigeons, but because the abscesses cause the chest area um, to swell and look like a pigeon, that's where the name came from. Are there any other names that it's known by commonly? Yeah, there's other names. Um, I've heard of dryland distemper is probably the next most common, and they've heard of false strangles or Wyoming strangles, but it's best um, to refer to it by its actual, the bacteria, which is Carinibacterium pseudotuberculosis. Okay, and I'll let you <laughs> use the long <laughs> names for it. That's probably why pigeon fever took off, because that's a lot easier to say. It is, it is. Um, so you mentioned strangles, and there is a lot of confusion. I'm in central Oregon, and we've had our share of pigeon fever up here. And there is some confusion between it and strangles. Um, is that something that's prevalent that people confuse the two diseases? There, you know, there's some similarities in that strangles can cause abscesses as, as well as tuberculosis, but there are a lot of differences. And there's a lot of differences when you're talking about, you know, immunizing a horse and making a vaccine. So um, strangles is streptococcus equi, another bacteria, but it um, infects the respiratory system. So it's um, taken up when horses, you know, eat or drink from a horse that's draining abscesses, has a snotty nose or has um, abscesses under their jaw. Um, so that's kind of where all of the similarity stops. So um, carinibacterium is a bacteria that's probably that's inoculated in the skin from flies or from contaminated soil. Um, so they, they're contagious um, via flies and, and by the environment. Okay. So we have a question from Ellen in New Jersey, and she wants to know how do we recognize this illness. Now, you've mentioned the abscesses and the, the appearance that looks like a pigeon's breast. Are there any other noticeable clinical signs? Yes, yeah, so there's, um, the disease has three main forms. There's the external form, whereas about 60% of them occur in the pectoral region and about 40% occur in the, the ventral abdomen, so down on the belly, um, around the umbilicus area, and we believe that um, they, a lot, a certain percentage of them can start with a fly bite. Um, hypersensitivity or fly bite reaction, those um, sores that horses will get in their um, girth area or in their umbilical area um, caused by biting flies. And then the organism is able to get in to the um, lymphatic system and then drain um, either forward up toward the chest or back toward the groin, toward the inguinal region, where then it sets up shop and causes abscesses. So there's the external form that's the far most common, 90% of the horses will have external um, abscesses, usually in the chest or the belly, and then less than 10% will develop internal abscesses, and those horses um, usually um, can have abscesses in their liver, spleen, um, lung, or, or kidneys, and those are the ones that we worry more about. And then a final, uh, another form that's the least common is ulcerative lymphangitis, um, and that's where you have um, small wounds or straining tracts um, that go up the legs and um, drain. So there, there are small ulcers that then ooze pus, and often um, more common in the hind legs, and the legs are quite swollen and the horse is lame. So those, that's another form that we worry about as well. Okay. We have a question that is from Terry in Florida, and Terry says this is a disease I'm not familiar with, and I'm, I know Terry is not alone in that. Um, she wants to know why would it have been a West Coast problem in the past, and why is it now moving east, and why now? Yeah, why now? We're not really sure. Um, as I mentioned before, it was, it's been endemic in California for a long time. 
um, and it's suspected that it may be related to, to climate change. Um, I, since I've been studying this and I have veterinarians calling me from different parts of the country, um, you know, it's, it's been seen um, in Colorado. There was uh, outbreaks involving tens of thousands of horses on the front range in Colorado in 2003 and 2005. And that was, um, if anybody's from Colorado and remembers, that's when they had severe drought, uh, much like they've been experiencing, um, you know, in, in the last year as well. But uh, we've seen t in California, where we tend to get most of our rain in the winter, and then we have very dry and dusty summers, and that's why we have our fire season. So it's possible that um, the record drought that we saw in Texas and New Mexico um, may also play a role because there's certainly been record numbers, thousands, tens of thousands of cases in Texas and also the surrounding states just within the last two years, and there's been unprecedented drought um, in those um, in, in Texas and in that area. Okay. So, um, you know, there's, there's various different things that, that could um, cause that. Horses are... Um, other horses, infected horses, we transport our horses a lot. Disease has a, a variable and long incubation period, so it would be easy to transport a horse that was incubating an abscess, bring it into a new farm while they're in, then it'll open and drain the abscess and contaminate the environment. And then these mild winters that we have had um, are really um, allow the insect population to really you know, get a head start on the season. And so we, we typically see, we can see the disease year-round, but many more cases in the summer and fall. And that's when our, our fly populations are at their greatest. And Dr. Spear, we've had a question come in from our live audience. Rose is in Deer Island, Oregon, and she wants to know if there are some cases of pigeon fever that are not severe or maybe misdiagnosed. Oh, I'm sure there are um, cases. There's, well, and that's, that's something that's interested me is there's a really wide range of severity with um, pigeon fever um, from the horse that starts to build an abscess and then rarely doesn't even go and, and mature all the way to horses that have recurring abscesses that may last for months and months. And then those horses that get internal infection, if they're not recognized, then they, they can die. So there's a a full gamut of diseases. There's even horses that um, we can tell, you know, based on their antibodies that they've been exposed and never get disease and they never show disease, although they've been exposed and mounted a, an appropriate immune response. So yes, I'm sure it can go un unrecognized. And I think I would encourage if, if you do have a horse with an abscess to call a veterinarian, have it cultured, so that you know what it is. Horses can get abscesses from various different things. You could get a kick in the chest that could have a hematoma, a collection of blood, could get any bacteria con contamination, and then that wouldn't be pigeon fever. So I would encourage you to, you know, um, to culture um, the organisms. And also the, the good thing about culturing is you can, um, you can look at the antibiotic uh, sensitivity and look to see if you do have a horse that requires antibiotics, you'll know what um, what the organism is susceptible to and if it's developing any resistance. So that's something else that we've been looking at at UC Davis is whether there's any, any resistance developing in this organism. So is there any way without culturing to know 100% that a horse has pigeon fever? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a good question. And I would say that a lot of veterinarians, especially in California where they've seen you know, this disease for, with experienced vets, they, the, the pus is, um, you know, tan colored, often has blood tinge, it's liquid, um, and it has no odor. So if it has any odor at all, that's not carini tuberculosis. That's a, a different bacteria. Those are called anaerobe, anaerobe uh, bacteria. But I, I do encourage, um, you know, vets and horse owners to, um, to um, culture that just, just to be certain. Okay. We have a question from Mickey in Chicago, and Mickey asks, does it seem to be affecting horses of a certain age group? Um, she also wants to know what other states has it been diagnosed in. So let's start with the age groups. Are young horses more predisposed to getting it, old horses? Yeah, these are all really good questions. Um, and um, in, we did look at this in California, um, where we've had this disease for decades, we saw um, statistically younger horses, less than five years of age, seem to be more susceptible. 
however, as the disease is occurring now in, in more recent studies where it's breaking into new areas or areas where they're more naive um, or not immune horses, you can see it in any age. So we've always been able to see, recognize that any age horse is more susceptible, but it's not, um, it's, interestingly, it's not seen in endemic areas in foals less than, um, you know, say five months of age, which implies that the mares um, have some protective uh, colostral antibodies that they pass to the foals. And again, we don't see more cases in those older horses with, you know, immune suppression or Cushing's disease. So any age, um, it appears that if the horse has not been exposed to it before, so when it comes into a new area, then you know the horses are um, are more susceptible. If if it's already in an endemic area and the horses have been exposed, then we can see it more in the in the younger horses. Okay. And part of Mickey's question was, what other states has other it been states, diagnosed? Yeah, in? when we've been looking at that, so um, the states that are the most prevalent would be um, California, Oregon, Texas. Um, but we've recently been, um, been doing a survey looking at other states. And I would say you can see it um, most certainly in the west um, and with the least number of cases in the far northeast. So Pennsylvania, I think we've seen one case documented in Vermont. There is um, cases that have been seen and documented in Florida. Um, so it, it has gone from, you know, it, it does span from the west coast to the east coast. There's um, cases, as I mentioned, in Oregon, also Wyoming, Montana, um, the neighboring states of California, so Nevada, Arizona, Oregon, Washington. And interestingly, I've gotten reports um, from Canada, from um, British Columbia, so the, the um, disease has spread to the north, and it hadn't been re reported in Canada um, prior to just recently. Hmm, interesting. Um, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Nebraska, North Carolina, but very uh, also Kentucky, um, but low prevalence in the Northeast. Okay. Um, we have a question from Debbie in Georgia, and Debbie says that she has pigeons mm -hmm. that hang out in her barn. Do the horses get pigeon fever from the birds or elsewhere? And so we've addressed this a little bit, but this is a pretty important uh, point. We might save some pigeons. <laughs> Yeah, so it has nothing to do with the pigeons that we're aware of. Um, it, again, it was given that nickname because of the, the high prevalence, over 60% of the cases um, have abscesses involving the chest. So that's the typical classical picture. But when you start seeing outbreaks of, you know, um, 30 horses in a barn or 100 horses or thousands of horses, you will see all the different forms. So it can occur anywhere on the body. It can occur, you know, on the face, on the limbs, um, even rarely in the ears. Um, so, and then rarely in internal, um, um, all kinds of internal infections. So spleen, kidney. We even had one involving the nervous system. So if you see, start to see lots of cases, you'll see it um, in lots of different places. Okay. It, but back again, it has nothing to do with the pigeons. It's um, the organism survives in soil, so the reservoir or the source of infection is the soil, and then it's vectored or transmitted um, by flies, by contaminated soil, or by what we call fomites or anything that's contacted the pus, um, which the pus is highly infective. So if you, you know, have a, a rag that you've been using to clean an abscess, you're carrying that, you get the pus on your clothes, and then you contact say, a braided skin of another horse, then you can be a fomite or the source of infection okay. for that so, other horse. Yeah, so you might have other reasons that you don't want pigeons in your barn, but this doesn't <laughs> need to be one. <laughs> not, right. Okay. Right. But this, or, this disease is not transmitted by pigeons. That... Okay. Uh, we have a question from Carol in Arizona, and she says, Hi, I'm from the Midwest where possum fever is a problem. Is pigeon fever similar to possum fever? So what I'm... Um, possum fever, well, really, it's, that's equine protozoal myelitis, so that's a different problem. That's a protozoal, whereas Carini bacterium is a bacteria, and the definitive host is the possum with equine protozoal myelitis. That's a neurologic problem, whereas the, the reservoir of infection of, of um, Carini due to tuberculosis or pigeon fever is the soil and it's transmitted by flies, so they're very different. Okay. 
We have a question from our live audience that's a follow-up to um, the what you brought up about the fomites. Chuck in Texas wants to know, because he's had two cases of pigeon fevers with his horses last year, he wants to know how can, long can the bacteria live on objects such as feed pans, doorknobs, etc. Can the bacteria be washed off feed pans with a garden hose and just using water pressure? Yeah. So the organism is is very resistant, um, and it persists in the environment. And studies done um, at Texas A&M and also at UC Davis have shown that it it actually survives, unfortunately, quite well on straw and in you know in a barnyard, and and it really thrives. So it survives in soil, survives in straw, um, probably can survive um, you know for. For months, um, it was documented two months in straw, so it probably could survive that long in a bucket, especially if the bucket was was dirty. If it was a really clean bucket, probably would have less less for the organism to survive on. Um, interestingly, the organism really thrives in the lab. So um, we did some studies with pre-veterinary students where we inoculated um, the crinie from a horse that had a chest abscess into um, different. Um, types of soil. We were curious at what kind of um, environmental conditions the organism would flourish, looking at soil temperature, um, you know, incubator temperature versus room temperature, um, and then different kinds of moisture of the soil, whether it was mud or a slurry or just dry, dry dust. And interestingly, the organism survives very well um, in a wide array of soil types. Um, so your clays and your sandy soils as well as your gravelly soils, and it survives um, in a wide range of moisture as well. And interestingly, when we add manure, um, so believe it or not, we sterilized the manure and added it to the soil samples, and the organism multiplied. So your typical paddocks, your typical you know, horse paddocks where you have soil mixed with manure make a perfect environment for this organism to multiply. So it's another reason to... You know, be clean, try to pick up the manure if you can. Um, so the combination of it multiplying in the soil and the flies is probably what's leading to the spread. Okay. And so that makes sense or explains why, like, here in Oregon, you know, we have it here where I live in the desert where we're very dry and sandy, but they're also having it over in the Willamette Valley, which is very different from our climate over here on the east side of the state. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, so I was it's well adapted to the environment, um, which is unfortunate for our horses. But a good reason to pick up your paddocks. <laughs> a pick up lot. Your paddocks, <laughs> and a real good reason why we need a protective vaccine because it's not going away. Okay. We we absolutely need a vaccine to protect our horses. That's something I've been working on for for a, a while. Um, our next question is from Nina, who is in Texas. We have lots of questions from Texas on this topic. Um, she wants to know how long is this infection uh, transmittable. Uh, she has a dairy goat herd um, and from time to time, and she wants to know if it can be transmitted from dairy goats to horses and how can she protect her horses with the goats around. Okay. So the, the, as I mentioned before, there was different strains, um, and the sheep and goat strains, the sheep and the goat strains are the same. and they, You can tell them apart in, in a laboratory. And they're different from the horse strain. So a horse does not infect, um, does not become infected from a dairy goat. They are different strains. The disease is a problem in our, our sheep and goats um, as well as the horses, but they are different strains. And cattle, um, though, can share both strains. So cattle can get um, the strains from the sheep, and they can also get strains from the horses. Oh, poor cows. Yeah. <laughs> That's... We have a question that's related from Delilah in Arkansas, and she said cows, deer, and other pasture critters thrive in the neighboring fields around her horses. Are horses at an added danger because of this? Yeah. So I can't say that we have all the answers to that, but cattle, as we all know, draw a lot more flies than horses, and a cow patty makes an ideal breeding ground for face flies and horn flies. Um, you know, the way the cow patty dries on the top and stays moist underneath just makes an ideal breeding ground for flies. And anybody that's been around cattle know that they can um, certainly draw a lot more flies. Uh, and then the horn flies that are really annoying um, on cattle um, also have really like to feed on the belly or the ventral abdomen of horses. 
And so they are um, a big cause of those fly sores that you'll see in the umbilical area or just behind the girth in your horses, and we believe that's a, a big risk factor um, for disease. So if one, one way to try to prevent this disease until we have a vaccine is to use, you know, the insect repellent ointments, things like SWAT and VIP, um, to really get ahead of those, um, those fly sores. And um, if, you, if there's an outbreak going on um, in uh, neighboring horses or neighboring farms, be really meticulous with wounds. You know, have that jar of furacin or antibiotic ointment out um, to uh, keep and, and also repellents to keep the flies off those wounds. The fly can certainly um, land on an abscess. They're attracted to pus, so they'll feed on the pus, take it up, um, and then go and land on the horse with a wound and then effectively transmit it that way. We have a question from Eva in California, and she wants to know how long it takes to treat pigeon fever once a horse has it. Yeah, it's very variable, as I mentioned before. Um, so we reserve um, for external abscesses, and I also encourage owners to really involve their veterinarian. There's no cookbook way to treat every horse with, with pigeon fever. Some will essentially require no treatment. They may open and drain on their own, and the horse never looks back and is back to normal within two weeks. Um, whereas other horses, if they you know, have infection of their legs, they need to be treated with antibiotics. They um, often require, if they're lame and they have an abscess involving their legs, um, they should be, you know, have a veterinarian perform an ultrasound exam, um, open that rather than waiting for the abscess to mature. Horses that have internal infection um, need to be diagnosed and treated with, with antibiotics. So there's different forms of disease. Um, would say that most external abscesses, by the time, you know, they open and drain, the horse is recovered within just a period of weeks. However, horses that have more protracted uh, multiple abscesses or have internal infa- infections, they can be sick for months. Um, we have a question from Lisa, who is in California, and she wants to know what the long-term effects of pigeon fever are. So, luckily, most of the time, if you have a horse that has a subcutaneous abscess in the chest or the belly, there's really no long-term effects. They open, they drain, the horse forms an immune response, and then you know goes on and, and doesn't have any problems you know for the rest of his life. Um, however, certain if they have abscesses in their legs or in their sheath, as you know, those are two areas, the lower leg and the, the sheath are areas that are really prone to swelling anyway. And if the organism damages the lymphatics, then they can, they can stay swollen. So we might treat those a little more aggressively, certainly treat any infection of the legs more aggressively you know, than just an abscess in the chest. The horses, the abscesses in the chest, though, amazingly, even though they can be big and disfiguring and have, you know, many... 100 mils of pus, um, when you see the horse just within a few months to a year later, you can't even tell um, often where the abscess has been. So no dramatic scarring in most cases? No, no none at all. It's, it's actually it's amazing to see um, that they recover so well from it. Um, we have a question from Richard in Nevada, and he said that two two of his three horses contracted pigeon fever in September a couple years ago. Um and one of the two had a second bout later that year. He says he suspects that it was from the hay that he was feeding as the grower doesn't trap or poison animals and the dust from their mounds often gets baled in the hay. Is this a reasonable guess as the source yeah. of pigeon fever? Well, I know that last year there was also um, Crinocito TV and the wild horses in, in Nevada. Um, and I... Well, I, most of the hay that, that I'm around here that's grown in California is grown in dedicated hay fields. So there aren't horses, you know, out in the hay fields where they would be draining abscesses and contaminating the soil. So um, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, there certainly is a lot of wind in Winnemucca, and so the wind could certainly carry the dust from another horse's paddock and um, contaminate his, his um, area if there's... Um, other horses around. Um, I think the wild horses could potentially, you know, be transmitting the disease as well. But I, I do know that it was the horses, at least, that were um, when they were gathered that were having. At least that's where it was the most noticeable. Um, 
We don't really know if the organism is transmitted by oral, by ingestion of the soil. Um, those experiments, no experience has been done, so maybe that's something that could be studied in mice or, you know, another another animal. But um, so I can't really answer that. It's an interesting question. There's certainly a lot of dirt that is, um, you know, baled in hay, so it is interesting that that dirt could come. Um, but I think it also could be blown in, and flies could also have brought in the um, organism as well to his horses. Okay. And part of his question, he mentions that the one horse had a second bout of it. Is, oh, yes. Is reoccurrence common? So we looked at that, yes. And reoccurrence, um, fortunately, the majority of horses, more than 90%, will just have a single bout of, of infection in their lifetime. But there's an unlucky about 8% that do tend to have protracted disease and they can get reinfected. So he probably has one of those um, unlucky horses. They, in, in my experience, they all recover. I have never had one horse that just, you know, continues to, you know, people have wondered if their horse is like a chronic carrier of this disease because they, you know, can go on and drain an abscess and then another um, two months later have another abscess. But those horses have all eventually recovered. May have had to treat them more aggressively. Those horses that don't appear to make an appropriate immune response, we've had to treat those more aggressively with, with antimicrobials. And um, that's something that, again, he'll just want to pay particular attention to any wound that that horse gets and use more fly control on that, that particular horse so it doesn't get reinfected. Okay. And that's one that when we do have a vaccine, definitely want to vaccinate um, to protect um, to protect his horse. Okay. We have a question from our live audience. Janet in Arizona has a quarter horse that had a pigeon-like breast after a wet spring uh, and has known many other horses in her area that have had the same thing. She said that she was told by her vet to let it play out and not drain it yes. because it would only come back. Is this true? Well, and... You know, and again, there's lots of different opinions on this disease, as you can imagine. Um, I would say the benefit of having a veterinarian lance and drain the abscess is then they can um, they can often collect. What we try to do is, you know, collect with a plastic bag and a bucket and collect the pus and really, um, you know, flush out the abscess um, and then use an antiseptic solution like dilute betadine solution to flush out the abscess. And then really clean it. Use um, and then use like a, a topical antimicrobial like furacin, and then a, a fly repellent, so that that horse isn't just walking around draining pus for you know days or weeks and contaminating the environment further. So you can you know bag it up and dispose of it rather than having that horse um, you know just walking around draining pus in the wash rack or the aisles or the pastures. So you mentioned bags and buckets. So how much uh, pus is coming out of these horses? Oh gosh, anywhere from it's it varies, but um, you know these horses have an awful lot of edema and swelling, and the organism has a similar um, toxin to a brown recluse spider bite. So sometimes you'll have a really big swollen area and not you know just a few mils of pus. Um, and then you can have, you know, say half a liter of pus. So it's it's real variable. Okay. So that would be like half a big thing of soda. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Um, our next question is from Kelly in Northern California, and she says that her yearling uh, had pigeon fever last year. His dam had, has a history of skin allergies, um, though she's not sure what the allergies are caused by. Her question is, is a horse predisposed to acquiring pigeon fever if they're prone to skin allergies? And are they more susceptible to another bout of pigeon fever in the future because of this? Yeah, so Kelly's kind of just right over the hill from us here in Davis. And it's an interesting question. I've never seen that documented scientifically or statistically that horses, you know, with allergies are more susceptible. But I have seen, made that observation, you know, clinically. It seems like those horses with fly allergies, um, you know, they may ooze and have breaks in their skin that then would attract more flies, and they also would have an altered immune response. Um, so it's something that I have seen. Um, again, those horses that are susceptible probably need more um, repellents. They need, you know, fly sheets, more protection. Um, and, again, that's something else to study. Um, 
Um, one of my own horses uh, have a chestnut gelding that is the most sensitive to flies, and he's the one in my um, small horse herd that also developed Karini. So it's an interesting observation that she made. So you've had to deal with it personally as well. Oh, yes. No, it's a horrible <laughs> disease. Uh, we have a question from Philippe in Brazil, and he wants to know about when would you recommend doing a blood test in cases of pigeon fever with external abscesses, and what makes you suspicious that a horse has internal abscesses? Yeah, so they do see the disease in Brazil, um, this uh, Carini pseudotuberculosis, and I have, um, working with a, a veterinarian in Brazil as well, we're collaborators, um, the blood test, the, the most important to diagnose the disease from an external infection is to culture the pus itself. So the blood test is not, um, there's, and it detects antibodies to that toxin that I mentioned about that is produced by the bacteria. So the blood test um, would not be useful for diagnosing external abscesses. The best would be to have your veterinarian, you know, lance or aspirate the abscess and then do a bacterial culture for Internal infection, though, the blood test can be um, helpful. So if you have a horse, most of the time, you know, horses with just external abscesses are really not that sick. Uh, they may have a low-grade fever or their temperature could be normal, and they continue to eat and drink and don't show signs, you know, other than, you know, soreness around the site. Um, however, if you have a horse that um, you've had an outbreak, of pigeon fever at the farm, or this horse had an abscess that you believe has, you know, healed, lanced and drained and open and is healed, but now, say, you know, a few weeks or a month later, the horse still isn't right, has fevers, um, a weight loss, that's a horse to really um, pay particular attention and look for internal infection. So you would want to do, um, have your veterinarian examine him, do a thorough physical exam, do um, blood work, your basic um, complete blood cell count, biochemical analysis, and then the serologic test would be used as an adjunctive. If they have, you know, evidence of an abscess and a high titer, a high antibody titer, um, then that would be suspicious for having an internal infection. Okay. The test is most useful in the absence of, um, so if you, after the, in the absence of an external infection. Okay. If you use the, the test, you know, without knowing, if you use the test alone, you can have um, some conflicting results. So I really encourage you to, you know, work with your veterinarian, um, do, you know, do a good thorough workup in those horses that are losing weight and you're suspicious of, of um, internal infection. We have a question from Joanne in California, um, and she said, should a horse be quarantined during pigeon fever, and can the horse be ridden at a walk in a designated, designated area if it's not having abscesses in the cinch area? Uh, yeah, so I'm, my advice for Joanne would be, you know, that's a case-by-case -case basis and using common sense. So, um, you know, if the horse was sore, I certainly wouldn't want to have forced exercise. Um, so my, my gut reaction is just to say probably if he's, you know, ill and brewing a carine abscess, he shouldn't be ridden. Certainly wouldn't want to share tack. You'd want to be clean. You know, maybe light exercise could help reduce some of the swelling, um, but we really wouldn't want to be, you know, spreading pus. If the horse was draining, we wouldn't want to be spreading that everywhere. So, again, that's why we try to, you know, give the horse some time, wait till the abscess is mature, and then lance, catch the pus flush it with an antiseptic and use plenty of, um, say, nitrofurazone ointment and, um, you know, fly repellent ointment like SWAT so that you're not infecting other horses with that pus. So is this a disease where your vet comes out, lances it, drains it, and cleans it, and then shows you how to clean the abscesses after that, yes. or does your vet yes. continually need to come no, out? No, they can certainly, again, on a case-by-case -case basis, they'll, they'll show you how to flush them and keep them clean, yes, and then, you know, um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Christy in Paradise, Texas, uh, shared her tack with a friend. Uh, her friend borrowed one of her saddles, including the breast collar, and during her time with the saddle, the horse came down with pigeon fever. She returned the saddle about a week later, but I haven't used it since. Uh, can it be spread to horses this way? And from what you just said, yes. Yes. But no, how we have 
seen that and um, have have documented that before from you know ropes and cinches if they come in contact with the pus and especially if there's you know causing any abrasion or irritation of the skin so you know be clean clean your tack and then you can also use dilute um, Clorox um, to if you have an area that you know is contacted the um, you know an abscess and you can you can also disinfect with some dilute bleach and let it dry okay um, we have a question about transmission from Dustin in Colorado who's listening live, and he is wondering if pigeon fever can be caused or spread by mosquitoes rather than flies. Yeah, we did actually, we did um, trap flies. I worked with some entomologists, uh, Scott Carroll and Janelle Alloy, who are also faculty here at UC Davis, and we went um, for, actually for two years, we trapped insects, various insects at um, farms that were experiencing outbreaks, and we did trap a lot of mosquitoes. We did not see it in mosquitoes. We saw it in um, three different species of flies that are real common around horses. We saw it in the common house fly, the um, stable fly, and also in the horn fly. So while there might be other, it could be in other flies, and you know maybe that we didn't. We had a little harder time catching the culicoides. I'm interested in that particular fly because it has a life cycle where it comes out of the soil um, and feeds on the legs and also feeds on the belly. Um, it causes a lot of irritation as the horses are itchy. Um, but we did catch a lot of mosquitoes, and we did not see it in the mosquitoes. Okay. And those culicoides that you mentioned, those are gnats, correct? Like yes, those little no-seam yes. things that buzz around their ears? <laughs> Yes, yes, drive horses totally. and people crazy. Them to rub their manes and tails, mm -hmm. and you know, um, it also there's they feed on the belly, and they come out of the soil in the springtime. Um, so I'm interested in in um, maybe researching that a little further. Okay, um, Vicky in New Mexico said that we are told to control flies to reduce the risk of pigeon fever. However, even with a spotless manure-free paddock, one horses on the proper one horse on the property um in a covered stall with a big attached paddock on a dry lot with a fly mask and a fly sheet and bubble wrap from head to toe and fly spray drenched in fly spray the horse still got um <laughs> pigeon fever um, yeah how do you so how i'm a fan you of the um, feed through the insect growth regulators um for controlling flies um, there's a product that's made by Zoetis, used to be Pfizer, called Solitude that has been used um, really across the country. Um, my colleagues in Florida were the ones that told me about it, and um, when it became an, uh, available in California, we tested it, and it, it is, um, it's a very good product. So they have it for cattle as well. They're called insect growth regulators, um, and they... Um, you feed it like a supplement, just a half an ounce to a horse. It goes through the horse, and it inhibits the formation of the chitin or that crunchy exoskeleton of the fly. So the fly then, it gets passed into the manure. It doesn't affect the horse at all. It gets passed in the manure, and then as the flies breed in the manure, um, they're not able to develop into the pupa and into the maggots. So your manure um, is no longer a breeding ground, and your manure pile is no longer a breeding ground. So that's um, that's a good way to um, it needs to be started before the fly season though you need to start it in you know March or April before you get those 70 degree temperatures and then continue it through continue throughout the fly season. But if you if you start that and have the horses on that, um, you will really reduce the amount of spraying um, that you'll have to do and it, it it can really help, especially in you know horses that you're not being able like horses that are out in big pastures or paddocks where you're not able to pick up the manure. It's very helpful. Yeah. Helpful to feed it to the cattle too that are nearby. Yeah, and I live on small horse property, and there's lots mm -hmm. of small horse properties, and I can't clean my neighbor's paddocks. Exactly, and that's <laughs> a problem. Yeah, that is a definite problem. Yeah, so the the fly predators are are useful as well, and then you could use those in a you know a different place if you're using the insect growth regulators. Yeah, maybe sprinkle but, them around you know, the neighborhood. There are articles that come out in the horse about fly control where you really it's not just you know one. Um, you know, one feature you really have to do, you know, the environment, the horse, the, um, and it's, yeah, it's a constant battle. Okay. 
Denise is in Southern California, and she wants to know how soon after an outbreak at a ranch should you start bringing horses on the property again? Yeah. So if, if the horse is not – so that, wait – I would say if if there's an outbreak at the ranch, remember that the organism lives in the soil. So a susceptible horse that you know could potentially still become infected. It's it's um, I would say to wait at least a month um, to be safe after an outbreak. Um, but this isn't always practical. So I guess the main thing that I would say is um, you know if there's any horses that are actively draining. You know, then I would want to warn people that you had, you know, you you were experiencing an outbreak. Um, but most horses, if they're not actively if taking a horse that, that's had that's um, had an abscess and taking it to another farm, probably within two weeks of healing should be, you know, not infected to other horses. The flies, though, flies can live for about a month, and the organism can live for um, we've documented for over eight months in soil. So it's not something that you're going to eradicate from that farm. Okay. And we have a question from Christine in Eagle, Idaho, and she is wondering about uh, about quarantining a horse that has had pigeon fever. Do the horses need to be kept separate? How can you protect other horses from the horse that's infected? Yeah. It, and so, again, you've got to use common sense. It's not as contagious, say, as a respiratory virus, influenza or herpes. It's not directly contagious like that. It's contagious, you know, from the environment and from flies and from, you know, fomites contact, contacting the pus. So for that reason, they don't need as strict, you know, quarantine as, as say, horses that had, you know, herpes or, or influenza it's not the same, or even strangles for that matter. But you, again, you should use common sense. If you can separate horses that have abscesses um, for for treating them, you know, take them up to a designated area to clean their wounds, um, you know, disinfect the the wash rack, um, and use you know good common sense that way. But it's it's not as um, important to have strict isolation facilities for these horses. Um, most hospitals will put them, you know, not in, in strict isolation. Again, it's a it's a problem with the environment and a problem with flies. So even if you had a horse in strict isolation, you know, if you're not using your, um, you know, fly protection on that horse and your other horses, the flies could certainly um, transmit it to other horses. We have a question from Daryl in Houston, and she wants to know if it's a good idea if a horse has an active infection to get it off your property so that your property doesn't become more infected. And where are you going to take this horse? <laughs> Someone who's not your friend. I'm going to bring it to my house, are you? Yeah, no. Yeah, so, no, um, that's, where are you going to take it? That's the thing. So um, I would say for the horse's sake, you know, keep him at home. Um, if it became infected at, at your own home, then your environment probably already is contaminated and the horses also have probably been exposed. I certainly wouldn't bring it to somebody else without telling them. Um, you could potentially, if you were concerned, though, take it to a veterinarian who would be familiar with biosecurity. And if you really wanted them off your property, then I would call a veterinarian and see if they would take him into their hospital. Okay. Um, we have a question from Diane in Pennsylvania, and she purchased a quarter horse from um, South Carolina via an, via, an, via an auction. At grooming him when he first got home, she found a row of round scabs on the front of his chest. She said her vet in Pennsylvania isn't familiar with pigeon fever, but the scabs to her hinted that that's what the horse had had. Um, the horse now has a cough that seems to come and go. Could pigeon fever compromise lung function long term? And if so, what should she do? Yeah, so in, in Pennsylvania, the disease is really, in the Northeast, as I mentioned, the diseases are really low prevalent. So this would be a perfect example of really wanting to culture to document that the horse even had pigeon fever. So I would be really suspicious. This doesn't sound like um, like pigeon fever to me. And so the horse really needs probably a workup for the cough, um, you know, with her veterinarian and maybe, you know, do a, a transtracheal wash and endoscopy and a workup to see if it's um, infection or allergic airway disease. So I wouldn't suspect this was um, pigeon fever until it was really cultured and proven that it was. Okay. 
Um, we have a question from Fred and Joan in Amity, Oregon, and they say, we fortunately have never experienced this dreadful infection, uh, but they obviously are familiar with it. Um, they say that they ask if there are any preventative vaccines or procedures a small thoroughbred farm could put in place to prevent infection. Yes. So there's, um, there's no vaccine at present and there's work going on. I would really, um, I would inspect the horses as they come into the farm, um, question, you know, the owners, whether they're coming from a farm that's having an outbreak and, and examine the horses. If they have, um, any kind of barn that they could keep the horses in for, you know, two weeks, that would be good biosecurity before introducing them into the herd. Um, that's, you know, would be good for prevention of other diseases, uh, respiratory diseases as well. And then just like bringing in any horse, um, ideally you would have that horse dewormed before you brought it in and, and brought it in and mixed it with other, um, say broodmares in your pastures. So, um, in a, in a big farm, you know, like that, I would recommend doing, you know, having the horses examined, um, and make sure you're not introducing anything with any swellings or um, potentially draining abscesses in, into the herd. Okay. Um, we have a question from Judy in California, and she wants to know if having pigeon fever makes a horse immune to having the disease. And we've kind of touched on this yeah. a little bit. Yeah, so again, like 90% of the time, a horse is going to have um, one bout of infection and then be immune for life. It's those un unlucky horses less than 10%, maybe less than 8% that seem to have a really protracted um, disease course and then appear to get reinfected. Okay. And we are down to having about nine minutes left in our live broadcast. So if you're listening live and you have a question that Dr. Spear hasn't answered yet, please go ahead and enter that into your console and shoot it our way. And we'll see if we can get to those before we wrap up. Um, our next question that we have is from... Um, Patricia in California, and she said that her horse uh, had a bad case at, our, at their boarding facility in 2013. It lasted three months and kept coming back. It affected his right leg and a sore on his chest um, where it would leak down his leg. Now that it's gone, can he get it again? She says this was a $4,000 illness. So is it possible that it's going to come back when it was so kind of ferocious with this animal? And is that how much it usually costs to treat them? Oh, yeah. So that's a hard one to say. Um, my guess is that it's not going to come back if the area is not compromised, if the leg's not swollen, um, and he eventually cleared up the infection. And um, as I mentioned before, um, that some un unlucky horses do get, get reinfected. Um, but my guess is that it probably will not. And it was um, probably $4,000 because it involved the leg, probably was ultrasounded, probably required lengthy antimicrobial treatment. And so I feel for her, and that's another reason why I've devoted so much time to uh, this disease because it's been kind of written off by a lot of people. Um, oh, just, you know, let them go. They'll heal on their own. Um, you know, it's not that fatal to have a, an external infection. And so I think for a long time it really wasn't given the, the respect that it uh, deserved. And then when you have a, a horse like this one, it's really a wake-up call that it is a very serious infection. So hopefully, um, Pat, your horse will um, never look back. Yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed for, for Pat Skilling. Um, our, our next question is from Marsha in Texas, and she wants to know uh, – when will we possibly have a vaccine for pigeon fever? Not soon enough, in my opinion, but it, there is work in progress. It's been a major career goal of mine to have a product, safe product available, and there is some preliminary testing now. It needs to be safety tested, um, but I can't put a date on when it will be available, but there is there's definitely work going on, and um, it's gotten some interest. So, um you know, be on the lookout, encourage, if you're talking to drug reps, encourage them that, yes, this is a disease that, that we need a vaccine for, um, and encourage your veterinarians if there's a product available to, um, you know, to use it. And um, I'm hoping that in my, <laughs> in my career I see a really good efficacious, safe vaccine for this disease. 
Well, and Pat mentioned spending $4,000 to treat her horse, but it also, um, from my understanding, can really affect a barn that's an active barn with horses coming and going and can impact the income of trainers and um, and horse shows and, and all those sorts of things. Do you see that as a problem? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, while it's not maybe as, as glamorous a disease or as fatal as West Nile, and um, but it is certainly a nuisance. And if your horse is involved or your barn is involved, it's a nuisance that can drag on for months. And so it's absolutely an important disease and important that we learn more about it and, um, and get a protective product um, that we can use safely on our horses. And we have a question that came in live from Margaret in Florida, and she wants to know if there's any way to get notified about outbreaks. Is it a reportable disease? Yeah, it's not a reportable disease, and I have had conversations with USDA. It's not likely to ever become a reportable disease either. Okay. And Jenny in Florida is listening live, and she said that she had to put down her. I guess, back to her question, the only way she would know is by contacting the diagnostic labs. And a lot of diagnostic labs, the the Gluck um, Center um, is one in Kentucky that does send out a newsletter. So um, and our our California Animal Health um, Lab also sends out a newsletter. So in Florida, their, their diagnostic lab or their veterinary school um, may send out a newsletter, so that's how she could um, become a, more aware. Yeah, and I'd add that at thehorse.com. On the horse, of course. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> when whenever we find out about um, pigeon fever outbreaks or or news, um, and we get that information from the universities, we're putting it up on our site. So check thehorse.com. We have news every day, and we have recently had some news about pigeon fever. So um, so the next question is from Jenny, who's listening live in Florida, and she put her 27-year-old horse down because of pigeon fever. She said that there are no horses or cattle nearby um, her that were infected. The horse hadn't left the property for six months. There were no horses coming and going for 30 years prior to her buying it. She wonders mm-hmm. how could her horse have gotten this disease? Yeah, I don't have a good answer for that, but, um, you know, potentially flies could have come in, you know, from a, an automobile. I know if you leave your um, your windows open, everybody knows that in the fly season, they, they can come in. Um, you know, the, the earlier question I don't have the answer to about soil and, and hay, um, you know, that's bailed up in hay is, is potential, but um, I don't have an answer for that, and I'm sorry about the loss of your horse. That's unfortunate. Yeah, and I'd add that I'm really strict about no flies coming on my property from other people. <laughs> can help it. Yeah, yeah. It, I definitely talk to um, my friends who come that have horses that, you know, just look, make sure there's not, and there isn't a stowaway in your vehicle. And when I go to other people's oh, yeah. barns, which I do quite a bit, I'm, yeah. sometimes they, they're sneaky little things. Yeah, they are. And we did, um, actually, when I was mentioning the fly study that we looked at, we trapped, um, you know, thousands of flies. And during an outbreak, as many as 20% of the house flies were carrying, um, the organism Crinibacterium. So that means that one in five that lands on you um, was carrying the organism. So that was um, shocking how how high during the face of an outbreak. So um, the flies were carrying it. So the flies are not the reservoir. So when we went back to those farms, those same farms that were experiencing outbreaks, after the outbreaks were over, we trapped flies and they were all negative. So it's during an outbreak um, where the flies are feeding on the pus that then they can be infected to other horses. We have a question that came in live from Sandy in Missouri who uh, lost her Arabian to pigeon fever um, eight eight days after he was diagnosed. Um, She wants to know if she should keep an eye on her other pastured horses this year because of what happened to her Arabian last November. So here's another person who's lost a horse from this disease. So they must have both had internal infection. They didn't say um, the form of disease, but it would be really unlikely you know, to lose a horse from an external abscess, at least in our experience, unless they had some other complicating, you know, factor. But the internal disease, um, she she should watch her horses. Um, again, it's it's less likely that um, that they're going to have it because it's it only made up about statistically about seven to eight percent of all the cases um, had internal infection. But if she has any horses that are experiencing weight loss, she could also have her veterinarians, if she's 
um, really concern full blood on the horse and just do a regular um, complete blood cell count. Um, but mainly just keep an eye on them, take their temperatures, you know, are, do they have nice shiny coats, um, maintain their weight. Um, if, if that's all true, then, then she doesn't have much to worry about. Yeah, and I do have a message from Sandy confirming that it was internal yes. with her horse yeah, that she unfortunately. lost. Yeah, those, especially if they go unrecognized, they can be they can be fatal. Um, and and the best, um, as I mentioned before, there's blood tests that can be run. Um, and then as far as diagnosing the disease um, and actually identifying the disease, abdominal ultrasound uh, can be performed. Okay. To so actually see to visualize the the abscesses in the liver or spleen or kidney. Okay. Well, we are out of time, and the hour went by really fast. This has been a really interesting conversation, Doctor Spear. I know living in an area where we do have a lot of pigeon fever, I found it extremely informative. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. And I, as we close, I just want to ask you: Is there one thing that you'd really like people to take away from tonight's? talk? <laughs> well, I think just I'm, I'm appreciative to, um, to the horse for helping to make this disease, you know, be more aware. I would say just for people, use common sense. Um, you know, if it's, it's not a disease that requires, you know, as strict isolation as, say, you know, herpes or other respiratory diseases or strangles. So use common sense um, and, you know, just take good care of your horses you wouldn't be listening to this uh broadcast if you weren't taking good care of your horses so get out and enjoy them and um look for a hopefully a vaccine in the near future okay well thank you so much dr spear thank um, you uh, and thank you everyone who sent in questions who listened live everyone who's going to listen to this in in the future after it's archived if you want to listen again uh, it will be on the website immediately after this broadcast uh, and it will be archived on thehorse.com if you have any other questions about pigeon fever or other health concerns for your horse, go to thehorse.com. You can do a search. We have tons of information on there. Uh, you can also find a link if you look for pigeon fever that will direct you to those AAEP guidelines that were mentioned at the beginning of our broadcast. I want to thank exclusively Equine for the sponsorship and everyone, good night and here's to some healthy horses. <laughs> All right, good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>